This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and a country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. This is the third of three Patsy Montana episodes for this season. I originally thought that I would just round out her career in this season, but I changed my mind. I wanted to do the end of her career justice, and I didn't feel like I could do that in this episode. And a fourth episode would take us too far away from the barn dance, and so I didn't feel like it would be natural here. So part four of the Patsy Montana story is coming at some point when you least expect it, so stay vigilant. In this episode, we'll take a look at Patsy's career in the 1940s and dipping into the early 50s as Patsy finds herself in the company of country music legends, reckons with changes in musical and cultural trends, and witnesses firsthand the decline of the National Barn Dance. When we last saw Patsy, she was riding high. I Want to Be a Cowboy's Sweetheart was a huge success. Uh, She was married to a man she loved, Paul Rose, and she had two daughters, Beverly and Judy, and she also considered herself a movie star. That was the 1930s. Patsy calls the 1940s the paying her dues years, and she paid them with interest. One of the first professional moves of the 40s, and probably the first misstep of her career, happened in February of 1940. Riding the success of Cowboy Sweetheart, Patsy's friend, producer, and mentor, Art Satherly, tried to capitalize on the Cowboy Sweetheart template convincing her to record several numbers that were nearly identical, such as, I Found My Cowboy Sweetheart. I want to be a cowboy sweetheart Was the song I used to sing As I rode across the lonely prairies Holding my horse's reins Now I have found my cowboy sweetheart Who knows how to love and to woo And he carried me all to the Parsons one day Where I promised to be true now we settle down on a ranch all our own Out west of the Great Divide And we started a brand with a little cow-gal She's our joy and pride I've learned to yodel and sing sweet lullabies And I've learned to cook and to sew And I've learned to be a wife and a mother too Just wanted you folks to know I want to be a cowboy's dream girl. I want to be a cowboy's dream girl and live neath the western skies. I want to hear him say I love you when I look into his eyes. When the prairie sun is sinking, he'll be riding down the trail to me. I want to be a cowboy's dream girl and spend my life on the lone prairie. And others like it. 
As much as Patsy won't say a bad word about nearly anybody, and as much as she praises Satherly, uh, she calls him her musical angel, if you remember that, what he suggests seems like an obviously bad idea, and one that she regrets. She says, I know there would only be one cowboy sweetheart, and I got sick of trying to write another one. I wrote some songs I love to this day, and I know they're quite good, but Uncle Art and Decca were insistent about what they wanted me to write and record. In 1940, Patsy and the Prairie Ramblers part ways, amicably, with members of the Ramblers breaking off to follow other paths, getting into movies, for example. At WLS, her new backing band is the WLS Rangers. Of course, this is a great loss to Patsy, but she's also able to work with some legendary musicians, starting with the Light Crust Doughboys, who backed her on several sides in 1941 as Patsy Montana and her partners. Even the shadows bring thoughts of you, so blanket me with western skies of blue. After riding in the saddle, Bringing home the strays to stay Now we're resting, oh thank night Resting for another day The moon's ascending Stars peeping through So blanket me with western skies of blue That same year, under the same name, Patsy is backed by the Sons of the Pioneers. Deep in the heart of Texas, the coyotes well along the trail. Deep in the heart of Texas, the rabbits rush around the brush. Deep in the heart of Texas, the cowboys woo with the other Deep in the heart of Texas, the doggies bow and they bow and bow. Deep in the heart of Texas. Patsy wasn't the only musician in her family destined for the spotlight. Patsy's daughter Beverly began performing at the age of five, singing on the Rhythm Range radio show on Saturday afternoons in 1940. From Chicago, the Roses moved to St. Louis later that year, and Beverly quickly found a spot on KMOX, the same station we heard about in the Girls of the Golden West episode. From St. Louis, the Roses moved to San Antonio, both on advice from her doctor. Patsy had chronic bronchitis, and she needed to move to a drier climate. And so Patsy could do some radio transcriptions to please her sponsor, Colorback, with Cowboy Slim Reinhardt, who would later be called the King of Border Radio. Then carry me back to the long ferry.
Patsy says, Well, Slim was established along the border. I didn't even know him till the company sent me down there and says, You and him are to make transcriptions together, and I want a duet on each album. I mean, song. And we couldn't sing together. Our voices didn't. He couldn't sing harmony, and he couldn't keep time. He was hard to sing with. He was a blend, I'd say, between Jimmy Rogers and Merle Haggard. Well, you'd have to hear him, but he had a good cowboy voice. He didn't have much personality because he was always saying, Keep those cards and letters coming in, that old clock on the wall. <laughs> He'd say the same things all the time. This is kind of a burn coming from Patsy. It's a grand old song about a grand old horse and a grand fellow. Now, this little song needs no introduction, it sort of introduces itself. Curly wrote a letter to a popular band that was playing on the radio. Curly said, if you will listen my request, this is all I want to know. Sing me a cowboy song. Let me picture again those days on the plane. While in San Antonio, who should join the transcription game other than the Carter family? Will you miss me when I'm gone? Will you miss me when I'm gone? Here's what Patsy says about getting to know them. She says, during that time, they also sent the Carter family down, and they do the same thing. About that time, during that time, Sarah and A.P. had divorced, the interviewer says, but they were still working together, Patsy says, still working together, but he wouldn't speak to her, and it was so funny. If he wanted Sarah to know something, he'd tell Maybell to tell her. I thought, why, I'd have to leave the... I left the studio more than once to laugh, so I thought one time I'm going to have them all over for dinner. He'll have to say something. He didn't come. No, they didn't. I thought it was so funny, but he wouldn't speak to her. He'd stand right there next to each other, singing, making beautiful music. The interviewer says, So you had them over to dinner while you were in San Antonio? Patsy says, Yes, uh-huh, just to see, you know. See if I could break that little ice there, because I thought it was terrible. But he didn't come. He had some excuse. He didn't show up or something. Yeah, they made transcriptions, too. The Rose family didn't stay in San Antonio long, moving from there to California, just as World War II was becoming an increasing concern. Patsy recalls a few scares where the war came dangerously close for her comfort. This is the era of Japanese internment, where 120,000 West Coast Japanese Americans, the majority of whom were American citizens, were forcibly removed from their homes and imprisoned in the name of national security. Patsy briefly mentions that they were living in a militarized zone in California where no one of Japanese descent was allowed. She says, there was a lot of population of Japanese in California, you know. They had all the little flower shops and little, so they just disappeared. Well, we know that story. It did seem strange. Just overnight, there was no Japanese on the street or anything. I had a regular fellow that I got my flowers from all the time. And my bakery, he was a good baker. He just disappeared. She also recalls the gas, paper, metal, food, and wax shortages in the 1940s that made life, particularly touring and recording life, difficult. 
Regardless, Patsy, on a break from KMX in Los Angeles, scraped together what she could and planned a tour with her brother Ken and his wife, who went by Texas Lil, a comedian in the vein of Minnie Pearl or Lulu Bell. They made it to the East Coast and the Midwest, spending a bit of time in Chicago. Patsy appears as a guest on the barn dance, and not wanting to return to California, both because she felt closer to the threat of war there and preferring to be back on the barn dance, attempts a letter campaign through her fan club, asking her fans to flood WLS with letters for her to be put back on WLS full-time for good. Chronic bronchitis be damned, I guess. It doesn't seem to work, and they continue their tour. With no offer from WLS, the Roses moved to Chicago anyway, with Patsy landing a gig on the Suppertime Frolic at WJJD in Chicago. From there, Patsy was able to leverage an additional gig on WLS, now working two jobs, both for the money and for the exposure that WLS would offer. Patsy's two gigs, though good for the time, made managing her life with two young children difficult. She talks a lot in her book about the difficulty in finding good babysitters, some due to incompetence, others due to scheduling difficulties. Here's one passage that Patsy felt like mentioning, despite her book Disavowing Sex and Violence. She says, One evening, while out on a personal, I tried a new babysitter for Beverly and Judy. I do not remember where I performed, but I do know the Prairie Ramblers were not on the bill with me. Salty Holmes stopped by our house during the evening while I was gone. The babysitter became pregnant and never sat for us again. It was not long after this incident that Salty Holmes decided to go out on his own. He left the Prairie Ramblers and did very well. We'll hear more about Salty Holmes when we do some Gene Chapel episodes in the 1950s. The U.S. had fully entered World War II at this point, and Patsy begins doing a lot of USO shows, and, like many other acts at the time, begins doing patriotic songs in support of the troops. When asked about the reaction of the soldiers at the USO shows, Patsy says, Well, that's when we did patriotic songs. We always had to do the Goodnight Soldier because it was on all the jukeboxes then. I can remember one thing as a young girl then. I had to watch these guys with the four stars, the old generals. That's the ones you had to watch. It wasn't the young guys. They was just buddies, you know, to us all. Oh well, I shouldn't have said it like that. Well... You sure learned those things, getting told about their grandchildren, you know, and changed the subject, so. Goodnight Soldier was Patsy's biggest song in 1944. Goodnight Soldier, wherever you may be, my heart's About Goodnight Soldier, Patsy says, That was my biggest seller during the war, and the minute the war was over, just stopped, as if you turned the faucet off. The only reason I got a big seller on it was, who was the gal that was on the air at the time? The interviewer says, Judy Canova had a hit on it. Goodnight Soldier, wherever you may be. Patsy says, well, anyway, it was her theme song, Judy Canova. It was her theme song. But her company was on strike or something, and she couldn't record it. And I did it for DECA. It was my bestseller. It was on all the jukeboxes. 
The Musicians' Union strike of 1942 may have helped Patsy have a hit on Goodnight Soldier, but it also created a missed opportunity for another hit war record. She says, I can remember the big song then was There's a Star-Spangled Banner Waving Somewhere. We'd get gobs of mail. Where can we get it? Write the words. I tell you how near I come to getting it on record. I knew it was a natural. Those days I could feel out songs because we was right with the public. And this strike came on. Remember this strike of ASCAP come on? And anyway, some band, some pop band is recording in Philadelphia. And they had a deal made that if they got through soon enough, I was to rush in real quick with my band and record the song. I'm standing outside the studio, and they stop exactly at 12 o'clock. And that's when the, oh yeah, that's when the strike started, at 12 o'clock. And I went to the bathroom and cried. I got in the bathroom. I needed privacy. I knew it was a natural. Sang it on all my personals, but it's Elton Britt's biggest number. It sold a million in no time for him. There's a star-spangled banner waving somewhere In a distant land so many miles away Only Uncle Sam's great heroes get to go there Where I wish that I could also live someday Patsy also did what she could to support the war effort in selling war bonds at personal appearances. She is said to have sold over 6,000 war bonds at a single show in 1943 in Newton, Illinois. One by one, musicians and radio men they knew were being drafted. The Roses were hopeful that Paul Rose's age and family status would keep him out of the war. In 1943, they announced that 1.5 million men would be drafted, half of them 18 and 19, the other half childless married men. This means that a lot of Patsy's backup musicians were gone, and Patsy does some solo records in 1945 and 1946. Bet your life no more I'll roam Turn me loose and I'll start going On the road to home sweet home Patsy was still having trouble with child care. She says, the babysitter problem was difficult. If I had a daily show, I could get domestic help. But if I did not have a daily show, I could not. Sometimes the fans, backstage Johnny's, helped. If I headed south, Mama kept Judy. Paula was in school. In Chicago, I had to work around Betty's going to school. Most of the Chicago and area shows were at night, so I could get away in time to go to the show and then be home before everyone had to leave for work or school in the morning. A daily show would have solved many problems. WLS was no help in this regard. Paul eventually was drafted into the Navy. He was one of the last men to be drafted in the U.S., and because of this, he had to stay in service after the war ended, being one of the military men who set up a military base and occupied Japan. While Paul was gone, things were all the more difficult for Patsy. She says, I was working myself into an early grave and did not even know it. 
I worked for two radio stations, did road shows, personal appearances, entertained at hospitals, did shows to raise money for war bonds, raised two little girls alone, took care of a big seven-room house, and all without having a car. In a newsletter dated November 13, 1945, Patsy says, Just as I was making up my mind I had better go back to work having a daily program, my doctor ordered me to quit work. Imagine that. It seems his instruments record that I'm practically living on borrowed time. My blood pressure is down to 80 over 40, and my heart is 12 beats slow. He says nothing but rest will do me any good. But how can anyone take it easy with two she-boys or tom-girls to raise and a seven-room house to take care of? Speaking of her children, Judy, just like her sister Beverly, begins performing as well, and in 1946, at age eight, makes an appearance on the barn dance. She sang Danny Boy and reportedly slayed. Things were changing at the barn dance in the 40s. The bigger stars were leaving for greener pastures, and WSM's Grand Old Opry was moving the center of country music to Nashville, exacerbating a Midwestern-Southern divide. About the decline of the barn dance, she says, well, it just, I don't know. I know Lulu Bell left. She retired. She was a star all those years. And another thing, too, there used to be an imaginary Mason-Dixon line. WSM, Grand Old Opry, didn't come up in our territory, and we didn't come in theirs. I know at one time during that time, we had Cousin Emmy, which was big around Louisville. She came to Chicago, and she just didn't mean a thing at all. That was Lulu Bell's territory. Patsy also remembers Cousin Emmy crying after a failed performance in Chicago. We'll get to Cousin Emmy next season. Trends were changing, morals were changing, but the barn dance failed to veer from the course it set out on in the 20s a moral show to a white Midwestern farmer audience. As long as Burridge D. Butler was in charge, there would be no innovation. Patsy says, I was scared of him, but I didn't want anybody to know it. But if I saw him coming, I'd sort of dart in the ladies' room or something. But he'd come up, you know, and no one knew when he was coming to town. And then he'd spend the rest of his time in Arizona. So when he left, we did what we wanted. Not what we wanted to, but we all relaxed. We'll say that. When he came in town, boy, one time, he came in there. I was out of town this particular night, out on a booking. He took a shot at the Ramblers and at the Hoosier Hot Shots, and he said, this place looks like a, whatever he called it, a body house or something. He used that word. The way you dress around here made the Ramblers go back to dressing like hillbillies. And he came up to the Hot Shots. Well, the Hot Shots didn't work for Prairie Farmer. They worked for Alka-Seltzer. So he wasn't about to tell them what to wear, so they didn't change. And oh, somebody else, I've forgotten what it was, had to change. I was out of town, so I came in next week and they told me all about it. Oh, Mr. Butler won't do that to me because he's never known me as nothing but Western. I met him face to face one night down at the barn dance. I didn't have time to run into the restroom, I suppose. He said, get them blankety-blank boots off. Yes, sir, Mr. Butler. So the next Saturday night I tried walking on the stage with heels on. Stumbled all over the stage. Then I tried taking off my hat. I felt undressed. Then he went back to Arizona. I put my cowgirl on, and he died that winter. I'm not saying I'm glad he died, but he didn't come back. I don't know whether it was that year he died or not, but he didn't come back. More on Butler's death in a bit. 
Paul returns from the war in 1946, and Patsy's pressures are somewhat relieved, but too much damage may have been done. With Paul back from the war and Patsy's chronic bronchitis acting up again, and without a daily program that would pay the bills without wrecking her health, Patsy decides to leave the barn dance. Another reason for her leaving the barn dance is that she saw the writing on the wall. The barn dance was in a decline. As a marker of the Rose family slowing down, they moved to Patsy's family ranch, which they bought in Hope, Arkansas. Patsy continues to perform with Judy and Beverly as the Patsy Montana Trio, and Patsy starts a gig at KTHS in Hot Springs. Paul gets work at a company that manufactured nuts and bolts. While in Arkansas, the legendary Louisiana Hayride begins in Shreveport. The Patsy Montana Trio lands a Saturday night gig on the Hayride, making their weekly schedule where, during the week, the kids are in school and Patsy does her radio show in Hot Springs. And on Saturday nights, they would drive to Shreveport to perform on the Hayride. Joining the trio is guitarist Bob McNett, who lives on Patsy's property, and Patsy touts him as being morally straight as an arrow, a point only made in relief to the debauched industry as she saw it. The Hayride is a kind of who's who of up-and-coming country music stars, earning the nickname The Cradle of the Stars. Patsy says, It was the glitziest show I had ever been a part of, and the music was fancier too. It was still the hillbilly stuff that I hated, but there were some entertainers who began to smooth out the sound into what, when finally polished, would become something called country music. We see why Patsy felt at home in the modest Midwestern barn dance. There was no flash, there was no hillbilly twang, there was no blues, western music was adored. In the wider world of country, western music was on the downslope. And even as hillbilly music's rougher edges were being smoothed out, there was a part of the progress, or crossing of genres, that just didn't sit right with Patsy. We'll of course talk about the Hayride and Wanda Jackson, Kitty Wells, and Rose Maddox episodes. And I want to do an Audrey Williams episode, so it will certainly come up then too. Speaking of, when Patsy first joined the Hayride, she got to know Hank Williams quite well, whose career was certainly on the upswing. The Hayride was his stepping stone to greatness. Unfortunately for Patsy and her girls, their slot was after Hank, who would drive the crowds wild and would play several encores. When Patsy brought up her displeasure at their slot to the showrunners, they said they needed Patsy to go on after Hank because no one else could calm the crowds down. Ouch. On top of this, Bob McNett, Patsy's trusty moral guitarist, is asked to join Hank's band, The Drifting Cowboys, which he does. Despite the bad slot, Patsy does have fond memories of her time at the Hayride, and she does remember Hank fondly. She says, The first impression I got of Hank was he's very quiet, and he didn't look well. I remember he was very thin, and I never really heard him laugh. He'd smile, but I just never... Somebody'd tell a joke. He just wouldn't just sit down and really laugh. The song of all the songs that Hank wrote, I think the song, Hear That Lonesome Whistle, what's it called? The interviewer says, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Yeah, I think that is Hank Williams. To me, that song is Hank Williams. Did you ever see a robin weep when leaves began to die? Like me, he's lost the 
When asked if she had to change her repertoire at all for the Hayride, she says, I had to do different kind of songs. I had to do more ballads. The little peppy westerns didn't go over at all. Cowboy Sweetheart did, but I always specialized in western swing. Now, I don't know. I just felt maybe it's because I had to follow Hank Williams all the time. I don't know. I really had to work at it. It wasn't quite easy enough. That's the impression I got. I'd like for you to ask Kitty Wells the same thing and see what... I know at that time she was on RCA, and so was I. About that time, I guess RCA, a long time, didn't admit country music meant anything. That's before it really hit. Well, anyway, they dropped everybody but Eddie Arnold. They dropped Kitty Wells, they dropped Patsy Montana. So, you know, Kitty Wells right on to DECA, and it wasn't God who made honky-tonk angels. Patsy Montana's still sitting around looking. Patsy does record some more songs for ARC and Art Satherly, but with no national platform to promote her music, these records are less successful. Of these recordings, she says, I didn't get to choose any of my numbers. I think an artist should at least talk it over with, or an A&R man should talk it over with the artist. In fact, I think RCA is the first time I ever had an A&R man. They created the A&R man long about that time. The A&R man she's referring to is Steve Scholes. The interviewer asks, in other words, Steve Scholes would show up at the studio with all your material? Patsy says, yeah, maybe I'd get it a day ahead of time, and I couldn't feel it. Sometime it'd be the type of number that I couldn't sing on the barn dance. I can look back over all my old royalty checks or statements. Numbers that I helped choose was the ones that sold. She also says they tried to make her into another Dorothy Shea. I'll do an episode on Dorothy Shea soon. She was known as the Park Avenue Hillbilly, a kind of city billy comedy act. Sometimes it gets to be exciting. Don't like them ornery neighbors down by the creek. We'll be plumb out of neighbors next week. Patsy goes on, see, I didn't know what they was trying to do to me. And right then is when my name began to go down as a record seller. You could see it happening on the old royalty checks. These recordings she's referring to were under Patsy Montana and the Buckaroos, reuniting her with the Sons of the Pioneers. Here they are with Mama Never Said a Word About Love. Mama never said a word about love That's the only thing she made no mention of I wake up bright and early every morning with the sun I milk the cows and cook and bake until the day's done But lately all the fellas say there's other kinds of fun Mama never said a word about love After their winter respite in Arkansas, the Roses returned to WLS for one more shot, but the barn dance was too far gone by this point. When asked, I wonder if you have any ideas on why the Chicago barn dance finally didn't succeed and finally folded, while the Grand Old Opry didn't, and the barn dance was bigger at one time. She says, yes, you know Mr. Butler, the owner of Prairie Farmer and WLS, when he left in his will that the station could not be sold until 10 years, and ABC had been after a Midwest outlet for a long time. So when Mr. Butler died, 10 years practically to the date, ABC came in. The reason for that was the stockholders of the original WLS and Prairie Farmer were getting to the retirement age. They were saying television would never work, it would never go, and they fought television. 
We should have been the first program. We should have been the first country and western show on television. We had all the equipment, the theater, the lights, and everything ready. But guys that had the money and the boss said, it'll never go. Television is not here to stay. So they fought it, but we know the story between television and radio. Everybody went for television for years. I really think that radio will come back in its heyday, I hope, where they will have live shows and things. Or podcasts. In 1951, I Want to Be a Cowboy's Sweetheart gets another moment in the sun when Patty Page records it. I want to be a cowboy's sweetheart I want to learn to rope and ride I want to ride o'er the plain and the desert Out west of the great divide I'm wondering if anybody out there has read Patsy's autobiography. It's a little hard to read for me, and I wonder what your thoughts are about it. It might be fun to do a book club or something. In the 50s and beyond, it's as though Patsy knows her career is in decline, and she isn't doing much to change her formula for success, appearing on radio shows and touring, and is grasping at every accolade she can tout. She is staying busy for sure, but it's not as a star who's gaining a new fan base that will keep her career going. It's not even as a legacy act, where she has a massive body of work that she can keep playing to please multiple generations of fans. She has a cowboy sweetheart. She has the distinction of being the first million-selling country female. She has a dedicated fan club, but things are difficult for her as she comes up against the demise of Western music and the rise of rock and roll and folk music. Her book maintains a plucky face, but the cracks show. Here's a little anecdote that shows what I'm talking about. The Roses moved back to California from Arkansas as another kind of semi-retirement from music. Patsy becomes choosier in the gig she takes on, but then they move back to Chicago to join WLS again, far past its heyday, almost as a last-ditch effort to reclaim her golden years. And WLS puts her family up in a trailer park that also housed other artists on WLS roadshows, from lion tamers to jugglers. Patsy says they did a lot of regional touring of the Midwest at this time, playing fairs and dealerships. She says, yeah, still working now. So we went and moved out in 1952, but I'd come back every year on a tour. And of course, WLS was always on my itinerary. I just happened to make the last broadcast with them at the 8th Street Theater. Of course, they had the cakes and the celebration. But that night, me and Homer and Jethro had to work up in Wisconsin somewhere the next day. And we had to leave. We didn't get to celebrate. Had to leave then. But I was with the last show at the 8th Street Theater. Then, I don't know about the lapse of time, maybe a year or two later, WGN, what group was left over from WLS, Dolph Hewitt and Lou and Scotty, they left. They went to North Carolina. They took what artists was left, you know, and started WGN. They never got off the ground because people just compared it to the old original, and it just wasn't. It just wasn't. It just didn't have the spark. The comedy was there that Lulu Bell furnished on the barn dance. So then it folded after, oh, five or six years. So there's no barn dance in Chicago now. When asked what induced her to go out west, she says, well, I think mostly was my husband had a chance to transfer, and the winters kept getting colder in Chicago. That particular year, when the snowplows got stuck in front of our house, my husband said, I've had it. So he just put in for a transfer. And that's what really just sort of 
The interviewer says, of course you brought a great reputation with you, but did you feel at all nervous about going to a brand new place? Patsy says, no, because I was sort of beginning to think about quitting anyway. I've quit dozens of times for a day or two, so it wasn't bothering me too much. I thought, well, now it's time to quit. It seemed like to me, Doug, that's the interviewer, that the first year there was more beautiful songs came out, just my type, when I was going to quit. And then I began to get, you know, I was around and I'd get calls. And first thing, I was right back into it again. So I never really quit. But I usually make one, at least one, and sometimes two, back to the Midwest, up east where I'm known and all. It's nice to see old friends. Another thing that brings Patsy out of semi-retirement in the early 50s is seeing other women get it wrong. She says, no, I actually really was going to quit. For about three months, I didn't do anything. Then I caught myself listening to some cute little songs on the air, and they'd introduce some cowgirl on television, and I'd look, oh, she ain't no cowgirl. She got on dresses and stuff, you know, low neck and all that stuff. Well, anyway, what really happened, my husband got active in the VFW, and they was having a show one night. And I don't know how anybody found out that I was Patsy Montana. I'd forgotten that clue. Well, anyway, they asked me to perform that night, and I grabbed it like a drowning man to a straw. I thought I was through with it, but I wasn't through with that at all. This is where we leave Patsy. In California, after a difficult decade, in semi-retirement, but not through with it at all. The third act of her career takes some interesting turns as she discovers a new fan base thanks to the folk revival and overseas in Europe. And she receives some well-deserved late career accolades. Also, she finally gets to play a show in Montana. You heard me right. She nearly went her whole career without playing a show in her namesake state. All of this in episode 4 coming at some point after this season closes. We have three more acts to talk about in the last few episodes of Season 2 of Wildwood Flower. Next up, one of my favorite barn dance characters, Louise Massey. See you then. To lie in the hay, to be loafing all day. Say, that's what I call living. When I get to where I'm going, bet your life no more I'll roam. Turn me loose. I'll start going 